tell you what, anytime you are down or discouraged or sad or heavy in your heart, if you will say that verse, <laughs> it will brighten your day, guaranteed. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I think the greatest thing about the Song of Songs is that realization is just being hammered home. I am my beloved and his desire is for me, even if there's feedback. Let's pray together one more time. Lord Jesus, I ask that you will pour out of your spirit tonight again, that we might simply bask in your love and recognize the depth of it, Lord. Something that far too many of us for far too long have not fully grasped or understood how how high and how deep and how wide, Lord, your love truly is. And this marvelous song is going a long way in taking us there. Take us further tonight, Father. Meet us where we are, Jesus, and head us toward the place that you have prepared for us. And Holy Spirit, be our guide in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we come to what I believe is the centerpiece of the Song of Songs. This is the, the central part of the song, the most important part. It builds up to this, and then from here, we'll kind of resolve on out. But this is the third canticle. Remember, there are six canticles in the Song of Songs, six little songs within the larger song. And we're up to the third one, and it's sung in two parts. Two parts tonight, what you could call procession and passion. Or, the wedding march and the wedding night. Procession and passion, or the wedding march and the wedding night. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 3. What is this coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon, sixty mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back or its base of gold, and its seat of purple fabric, with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Zion, or the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. The chorus is singing. This is now the longest section that the chorus sings. Verse 6 through 11 is all the chorus. The daughters of Jerusalem singing in this song, singing their part as they describe the wedding procession. This marvelous procession. Specifically, what they are describing here is the king's palanquin. Now that's a word you're going to have to get used to or familiar with on Sunday because we're going to talk about this section in depth on Sunday. The king's palanquin. A palanquin is a traveling couch. Very familiar in in the Orient, in the Middle East, back in the days of of Solomon. And you can imagine it, the, the two posts that would go under the lavish couch of a king or a queen and they would ride atop as they were carried by servants. It's called a palanquin. And that is what's being described in verses 6 through 11, this palanquin of Solomon. Now again, I'm going to save this for Sunday, but I need to briefly make a correction over something that I taught a couple of weeks back when we first got going. I shared in the opening teaching on this, in the introduction, that chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, this section, is the procession of the king. 
coming up to the north country of Israel, to the hills of Ephraim, to get his bride. You recall that if you were here. That I said the people are all running about saying, who is this coming? And, and up comes the king to, to arrive and to surprise his bride. He steps out of the palanquin and suddenly this king, King Solomon, who has called her to himself, she doesn't know why until she recognizes he is the shepherd she fell in love with. Now I believe that backstory still fits. But the problem is, in this wedding procession, as the third canticle begins, he's already got her. He's already got her. He's not coming to get her. He has already picked her up and now they are riding back. I just got my directions a little confused. Ask Cheryl, that happens from time to time. How do we know? How do we know that he already has her? How do we know what direction Solomon's traveling couch is going? Well, very simply, look at verse 6 again. What is this coming up from the wilderness? When you're in Israel and you go up, where are you headed? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. It's the highest point in Israel. From any direction, whether coming from the south or from the north, east or west, you always go up to Jerusalem. And I believe that's what's going on here. In fact, go back a few verses more. Remember at the end of the second canticle. Verse 4 of chapter 3. The bride says, Scarcely had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let go until I had brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. And then he sings, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. And the music slows there. And then we head into the next canticle and suddenly they're going up. They're heading up from the wilderness. She found him, and she holds on to him, and he holds her fast. He will not let her go. And now, as we get into this canticle, he is bringing her up from her mother's house to the place he has prepared, to his father's house, the place he's prepared for his bride, up to Jerusalem, and it's a rapturous procession. In fact, Paul describes our role in this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord just as they go up to Jerusalem, so we will go up to Jesus. But you might say, well, that's great and it's a nice picture, Rick, but the... The verses here seem to be a journey, and isn't the rapture instantaneous? Doesn't the rapture happen in the twinkling of an eye? Listen, we are already going up. We're already traveling on the king's palanquin. It's just that in the last few seconds, suddenly, boom, we'll be there. But once you've given your heart to Jesus, once you've given your life to Him, you are riding with Him. Your journey is upward. We are headed to final destination. And it will happen in a twinkling of an eye that we will leave this earth and meet Him in the clouds. But right now, we're already on the way. And sometimes I think as Christians, we need to remember that. That we're not just slogging along down here hoping that you know someday things will get better. No, we're already riding with the King. We are already in the company of Jesus Christ. We're with Him now. Traveling in His palanquin. And we're going to look more closely at that on Sunday, Lord willing, unless He does catch us up quickly before then. 
So hold on to those things. Maybe read through those verses. Consider them. Pray them through. And we'll come back to this on Sunday. Chapter 4. And we need some time with this chapter. Because in chapter 4, for the first time in the song, the groom does all the singing, save one verse at the very end of the chapter. It's all the groom. From verse 1 through verse 15, and he picks it up again in chapter 5, verse 1, it's all the groom singing. And the bride responds at the very end. But the groom begins in verse 1, How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Now I need you to remember something about this song. It is written in the Jesus clef. That is the key to getting the music right in the Song of Songs, is Jesus. It is about Jesus. It is sung by Jesus. It portrays Jesus. And Jesus reveals to us what's really going on here. And you know what's hard to comprehend? That Jesus has a greater love for us than we could ever possibly have for Him. I mean, on your best day, on your best day, in your most passionate moment, when you are the most enraptured by Him and loving Him and and every thought is captured and captivated by Him, we're not even close to how much He loves us. And people have a hard time believing that because we know how unlovable we are. And we recognize that truth in ourselves. I recall as a young man searching for verses where God Himself said, I love you. You see, I I knew it in my head. I grew up, I was taught that, and I knew the old stories, and, and I even believed, yeah, that He loves me, but I wanted to hear it from His mouth. And so I started literally searching the Scriptures, looking for, I just want to hear Him tell me that He loves me. I don't want to hear it in a third person or vague. I don't even want to hear that God so loved the world. I want to know that He loves me. And I want to hear it from Him. And as I searched... And as I prayed about it, he didn't answer right away, which was a little frustrating. But I can tell you over the years, his answer has come like a flood. It has been like a deluge. The love of God is overwhelming. The love of God is breathtaking. The love of God, it's an engulfing, even a devastating thing. If you will allow the love of God to fully permeate your heart... If I will completely open myself up to Him, I will be washed over. I will be knocked down. Rich Mullins once sang of the love of God as a reckless, raging fury. In the song we sang earlier, John Mark McMillan says, He loves like a hurricane. But if you think about Katrina, that is the force. Or even a greater force than that of His love. Just massive, huge overwhelming. Spurgeon said God has such love in His nature that He must needs let it flow forth to a world perishing by its own willful sin. And when it flowed forth, it was so deep, so wide, so strong, that even inspiration could not compute its measure. And therefore the Holy Spirit gave us that great little word, so. For God so loved the world. We need that little word in there. Because there's no full description of the true depth of the massive power of the love of God for us. He says that the Holy Spirit gave us the great little word so and left us to attempt the measurement according as we perceive more and more of love divine. Listen, as much as you know God loves you today, you just barely scratch the surface. We are barely understanding. 
And we will, I believe, for all eternity, simply be overwhelmed by the, the, the very notion of the passion and the love that God has for us. And if the world could even get a glimpse of that, everybody would be flat on their faces, in repentance, crying, mourning over a son. And they will. You know when it tells us that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? That's not just a religious thing. In fact, it's not a religious thing at all. When the world sees Jesus, everybody will bow because there's not going to be any other direction we can go. People will fall flat on their faces and be overwhelmed by His presence and by the fact for so many that they missed what He was offering all along, which was not government. It was not religious institutionalization. It was love. I was praying a few minutes ago. Permit me to go off for a second here. Praying that God would help us not become an institution as a church. You know why? Because today I got five different emails of people either complaining or criticizing or questioning what the bridge is doing for them. And I sat back and I went, wait a minute. We're the bridge. The bridge is not an organization over here that you apply to for aid. That is not this church. That is not what the church is supposed to be. You know? You see a need, you fill it because you're the bridge, you're the fellowship, you're Jesus' people. I'm Jesus' people. And and, and please don't get me wrong, because I know people have needs, and and I know as a fellowship and, and as a pastor myself and with church leadership, yeah, we want to respond and help everybody. But I think there's a mentality that's getting skewed here. This is about relationship. This is not about welfare. We're not a benevolent state. You know, we care for each other. So let me get back to where we are. It just kills me sometimes because I think back eight years ago when we started the bridge and there was only 20 people, there was nothing but relationship. Nobody presumed to say, hey, what's the church doing for me this week? Because there was only 20 people. Look around the room, you know. And now we're just starting to crest that point where people look at the church. What has the church done for me this week. What can the church do to help this situation? Hey, forget about that. What can you do? How can you help? When you see a need, fill it. Care for people. Love each other. Let's stay free of all that sticky, icky goo that is the institutionalized church and just be a people who love Jesus and love each other. I'll tell you what, we do that, the emails will stop. <laughs> and I really don't mind it. Please don't get me wrong. You know, I, whenever I say something like this, Usually I don't get any emails for about a month. Listen, you can, you can come to this fellowship for aid or for help. And that's welcome. But it's, it's the heart that, I, that I'm concerned about. It's the attitude. What are we? We are a group of people who love Jesus and love each other. So let's walk that way. Let's just act that way. Now we have this love song. Back to it. Stuck right here in the center of Scripture. God pouring out His love. You know that silly young man that I was one day so many years ago who said, God, I just want to get... You tell me your love. And all I had to do was let the Bible fall open to the middle and come to the Song of Songs and I would have been overwhelmed if I had understood. But not yet being 30, I probably would have taken it wrong. (laughs) This song is amazing. When I say that chapter 4 is the groom singing, gang, that's Jesus. 
And you need to hear in these words Jesus singing to His bride. But prepare yourselves. This part of the song can only be sung in the bedroom. Verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. I know. Stay with me. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. Until the cool of day when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. He begins with her eyes and he makes his way down, slowly, lovingly, detailing each successive nuance of her beauty. And guys, ladies, this is on the wedding night. And he is enjoying her. And the picture here is a little... It's a little intense. It's a little intimate. It's a little more romantic than we tend to be in Bible study in the barn on a Wednesday night. What's going on here is stunning. Now, I'm sure some of you have seen the pictures. You know, the the drawing of Song of Songs chapter 4. Have you ever seen artists try to render this picture? And it's pretty hilarious. You know, neck like the Tower of David and, and there's sheep running down her head and her teeth has sheep in it, you know, and the, I won't even talk about the breast because that in the picture is just really weird. But listen, we don't understand this because we're not in this culture. We don't get what he's saying. The poetry here, it is breathtaking what he is actually saying about her. And so we got to walk through this bit by bit. But understand, even as we're walking through this and trying to understand the cultural nuance of what he's saying, he uses physical, even carnal words to describe her, but there's far more than just lust going on here. He's passionate for her, yes, and there is a physical attraction going on, but the physical, listen, is speaking of the spiritual. And that's what we've got to grasp in this. Kind of like in the revelation of Jesus. You know, when John sees Jesus, he uses physical words to describe a breathtakingly awesome Jesus. You know, eyes of fire. He says, out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Now, I don't think when John saw Jesus, there was a sword, you know, shooting out of his mouth. That would be strange. You know? Feet on fire like bronze. I mean, you know, the whole picture is, but it is explaining. It's trying to use carnal fleshly words to explain something that is almost inexplicable spiritually. And that's what's going on here, except now it's the other way around. It's Jesus revealing what He sees in His bride. And what He sees is marvelous. Let's consider these. Go back to verse 1. He says, Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. So eyes like dove. We've talked about this before. The dove resembling or a picture in Scripture of the peace and the purity of the Holy Spirit of God. Your eyes are like that. He looks at her eyes and there is just this wondrous calm. There's a peace that passes understanding. The peace of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. He's talking about what is on the inside and coming out. And you can see in a person's eyes where their heart is. You know, the person who's bitter and scornful of the world and just tired of all the living, their eyes are dead. Perhaps you've looked into someone's eyes like that. The person that is passionately in love with Jesus, their eye, there's something different about their eyes. The Holy Spirit is there. And if we have His Spirit dwelling within us, there's light and there's peace and there's purity and there's hope and there's joy in our eyes. And note this, the groom Jesus sees that in His bride, in you, and He finds it beautiful. Jesus is looking for people with dove eyes. Jesus wants to look into your eyes and see the Spirit. He loves that. It's attractive to Him. Which is why Paul says in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Why would we deny... Why would we deny something that he finds so alluring? I'll come back to this, but I think we spend too much time thinking about what the Holy Spirit does in and for us rather than what his presence in us does to Jesus. Come back to that thought. But eyes like doves. He goes on and says, Your hair is like a flock of goats. Now in our culture, guys, don't use that. Because it's not going to be understood. My hair is a what? Ratty... You know, what are you saying here? Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Now, if you back up, though that hardly sounds complimentary, if you back up and consider, if you can imagine a flock of goats coming down the side of a mountain from a distance, it might be actually kind of pretty. Pastoral, serene, beautiful. As they're coming down, cascading down the side of a mountain, you see, you can't really see their faces. You don't hear them bleeding. You know, you don't hear them their hoofs as they're beating the ground. You just, you just see them slowly moving down. It's wavy. It's beautiful. It's soft. And that's what he's describing here. A flock descending the fertile pastures of Mount Gilead, having that soft, cascading look about it. And he compares that to her hair. Her hair. And remember, the groom has a shepherd's heart. So this is language that would be familiar to him. He's just using what he knows to describe what he sees in her, this beautiful wavy hair. In Micah chapter 7, verse 14, says, Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. So like a flock of goats coming down Mount Gilead. The shepherd's heart, by the way, also explains the next verse. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Okay, teeth like a flock of female sheep. What's he saying here? It's another pastoral description of something that is clean and smooth and white and a perfectly matched set. Each one has its twin. So for every tooth on the left side, there's an exact tooth on the right side, and everything is right in its place, and not one has lost her young. What does that mean? All her teeth are there. It's a good thing. 
What has 32 teeth and loves country music? First three rows of the Grand Old Opry. <laughs> um, sorry. Do you have good teeth spiritually? Jesus is not looking for a toothless bride. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that out there. There are a lot of Christians who don't have the teeth for the meat that He offers. Toothless bride. And Christians who can take in the milk and maybe an occasional bit of honey. But Jesus calls His bride to have strong teeth, able to chew on the meaty truth of His Word. You know, a beautiful smile is is a lot of what makes a person's face attractive. And if you can imagine the bride on the wedding night giving a big old smile and three or four teeth missing, I mean, you know... (laughs) And Jesus is looking for strong teeth. People who are able to articulate His message of love because we have ingested and digested it well. So, teeth, like a flock of shorn ewes. It's a a really good picture. Verse 3, He says, Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Scarlet lips and a lovely mouth. You know, honestly, there are few things uglier than a beautiful woman cussing. I just hate that. You know, you see a Hollywood starlet in a movie and she plays some romantic role, maybe some old old school role, role you know, like of the Victorian era. And, and she's just beautiful and, and the, the language flows off her lips and you think, wow, she's really pretty. And then you see her interviewed for the movie a few weeks later and she's cussing right and left. You just go, oh, ugly. It's just ugly. Young people, hear me on this. Cussing makes you ugly. It just does. It makes men ugly, but we're already you know, halfway there. But women, I mean, come on. Or gossip. Or cursing. Using the name of the Lord in vain. Spewing out mean-spirited, divisive sentiments. These things are ugly. These do not depict a lovely mouth. And Jesus is looking for His bride to have a lovely mouth. A beautiful mouth that speaks spiritual truth. That when the name of Jesus does pass our lips, it is never in vain, but always in joy and love. The right kind of mouth, a beautiful mouth, speaking the grace of Jesus. Paul said in Colossians 4.6, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Gently, tenderly, lovingly. A lovely mouth. He goes on and he says in the latter part of verse 3, your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. (laughs) Temples like slices of pomegranate. Now that could indicate kind of the reddish blush. You know, of a pomegranate on the outside. It's got that reddish hue to it. Maybe that's what he's indicating on her cheeks. Or perhaps even the shape of her temples if you were to take a pomegranate and slice it in half. Perhaps I don't know. But I do know this. The inside of the pomegranate is sweet. Now, if you ask me, I think that's what he's getting at. Your temples are like pomegranates. Huh? Your temples are like a pomegranate sliced open. When you look inside, it's sweet, it's beautiful. I think he's indicating the sweetness of her thoughts. Her thoughts, what's on your mind, sweetheart? What are you thinking, darling? You know, Cheryl and I will be driving along, and sometimes I just say, hey, what's on your mind? Not because I think it's going to be rocket science, but because... Because I just want to hear the sweetness. I know there's something going on 
And I want to hear it from her. And, and I believe that that's what he's indicating here. Psalm 40 verse 5 says, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Listen, we know his thoughts are sweet, but what would he say about your thoughts? Or my thoughts? Would he compare them to those sweet, juicy seeds of the pomegranate? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, we are taking every thought captive to obedience to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive. Not allowing the thoughts to stray to the things of the world, but to the things of Christ, the things that are beautiful, so that He would say about you, say about me, your thoughts are like a pomegranate. They are sweet to me. Verse 4, your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones, on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. This is interesting, a neck like the Tower of David. He's not talking about a Barbie neck. You know, if Barbie was a real woman, she'd be freaky. She would. She'd be weird. You know, she'd be 90% leg, and the other 10% neck. Because she's got that really... Anyway, but the Tower of David, that's not... He's not saying she's got this elongated neck. But he is comparing her to something royal. And I think what he's getting at here is not so much the loveliness of the symmetry and the grace of her neck, although he may be indicating that, you know, bejeweled with necklaces. More likely he's describing how she carries herself. What do you mean? Confident. Chin up. The bearing of a queen. Hey, she's the bride of the king. She's no longer the shepherd girl, dirty and dusty there in the vineyard. Now, she's the king's bride. And it's changing her. It is altering her. You know, I wonder, how do you think we'll act in the millennial kingdom? What are we going to be like then? I, I had so many thoughts this week in studying this about... Just kind of overwhelming stuff. What will I be like? What will my bearing be in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ when I am part of His royal government? Am I ever going to have days where I'm walking around all slumped over and bummed out because I'm just no good? Or will I always be walking with the bearing of my King, Jesus? I'm, I'm His. And He is mine. And His desire is for me. The bearing of royalty here there's something wonderful and we see it in this bride and it it continues through the whole song. There's something wonderful that happens in the presence of Jesus. We grow in confidence. Our assurance gets deeper. And it's a very cool thing because I remember, again, being a young man, I was not always that confident. I believed. I always believed But I felt real shaky in my faith and my ability to stand up for Jesus. And there were times I slunked around as a Christian. Friends who never knew I was a believer. And it was frustrating to me as a young kid because I thought, I I wish I could be more self-assured, more confident in Christ. Guess what? I am now more than I was then. Boy, I hope I'm a lot more in ten years if the Lord should tarry than I am right now. But the longer we're with Christ, the more time we spend around Him, the more confident we become. And I think he sees this in her. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 tells us God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. 
and God abides in Him. And by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. The bride of the King has a great confidence because of His love. Chin up like the Tower of David. Verse 5, Your two breasts are like two fawns. Twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. And I always wondered, in fact, for eight years, I've kind of wondered in the back of my mind, how am I going to deal with this verse when we get here? Breasts like two fawns. Now, you young Jewish men under 30 might have trouble with this and may need to go ahead and leave. May recall we talked about that, that the Jews would not allow their young men under the age of 30 even to read the Song of Songs because they said they'll take it wrong. They're going to take it carnally. They're going to take it as a, as a fleshly sexual thing instead of the spiritual, beautiful, marital, meaningful thing that is intended here. Now I understand that when we get to this verse. But listen, he's not talking about shape or form when he compares her two breasts to two fawns. That'd be weird. You know? I mean, that'd just be kind of freaky. No, he is talking about softness and warmth and attraction to a bride. Listen, to a bride who is freely opening herself up to him. She's giving herself to him. She is allowing herself to be vulnerable in an intimate moment with him. And, and note this the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense are also poetic references to her breasts as being fragrant and alluring. I mean, I told you, this is wedding night stuff. And that's what he's describing here. But again, Jesus is the clef for this song. It's not a treble clef, it's not in the bass clef, it's in the Jesus clef. And He is the key to hearing the song right. And nothing is more fragrant to Jesus Christ than someone who is freely giving Him their heart. Who is opening themselves up to Him completely. Hebrews 10.22, when considered in this light, is very intimate. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near with a sincere heart. Open yourself up to Jesus. Now, if you're a little uncomfortable, let's just push it a little further here. The groom is singing about making love all night long. That's the context of this. In fact, look at verse 6 again. He says, Until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Until the cool of the day? What do you mean? In Jerusalem, the cool of the day is morning. That's the coolest time of day. When the shadows flee away, as the sun is rising up, it's morning. The translation, cool of the day here, the the Hebrew word, you might note this, is puach. P-U-A-C-H, if you want to jot it down in your notes. Puach, it's similar to ruach, which we know is the word for breath or spirit. Puach is to puff, or, or to blow, or to exhale. 
And so the description is a poetical description of the blowing of the day when the day blows in. And he's saying, I want to have you, sweetheart, until the day comes rolling in, until the day blows in. Or as the King James puts it, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. He is inviting her to make love with him until the breaking of dawn. All night affair. How long are you willing to be with Jesus at a given time? We have in the American church cut way back on time spent just loving Jesus. We've developed what I would call, and I mean no offense by this, but we have developed quickie church. Quickie church. Get in, get out, get it done fast. Quickie church. We get together in Jesus' name, but it's a couple songs, a video clip, a soundbite sermon, and you're out of there, fast exit. Cheryl and I visited a church in Spokane this last weekend. It was great. The music was wonderful. Teaching was was good. And we were in and out and in the car driving away in under an hour. And I just went, it was good, but it wasn't long enough. I, I, I was just starting to enjoy Jesus when it was over and time to leave. And I'm not trying to, you know, push for longer services. I'm just saying, no wonder we have trouble remaining in the embrace of Jesus when all of our training says, get it done quick. I mean, married couples, really? Is that what you want? Okay, but let's just be done with this, you know, because in like 10 minutes, mash is on. (laughs) I mean, come on. And I'm really not trying to be crude, but here's a reality, and please understand the spirituality of this. Just as physical immaturity causes sexual experience to be over way too soon, so spiritual immaturity causes time spent with Jesus to be over way too soon. This groom is saying, I want to make love all night long. I don't want this to be over in 5 or 10 or 15 minutes or an hour. I want you to stay with me. Remain in my embrace. Let's stay together. Let's enjoy each other all night until the day blows in. I mean, think about what the groom keeps saying. Do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. He's holding her there in that warm embrace Don't call her out. Don't send her away. Don't distract her. He wants her to be able to stay with Him until the break of day or, in Jesus' words, until the end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. I am with you always, He says, to the end of the age. And He doesn't indicate there that He wants to be with us an hour a week. You know, take your church pill. One hour a week. Pop that bad boy in. You'll get a little you know, refreshment and you can get on about your day. Don't worry about it. I'll see you next week. That's not Jesus. All night long. All season long. To the end of the age. I want to be with you. This is the heart of Jesus pouring out. Are you, are you with me here? Because I don't want to leave you in some carnal place going, wow, that was just a little crude. There are times in Scripture where the Lord uses incredibly intimate things to make incredibly important spiritual uh, messages. And this is one of those.
verse 7. He says, You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. There's the church. He is talking about us. No spot, no blemish. Remember Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for it. And husbands, you should, but He's not talking to husbands. Paul says that He might present or that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself, a glorious church having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Oh, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no blemish in you. And you and I know that's not our natural state. Our natural state is blemishes, you know, and warts and moles and wrinkles and crusty things in our eyes and... Hair's coming out in places that hair shouldn't be coming. I mean, you know that? And spiritually speaking, we're, we're a blemished people. Wouldn't we be if not for the blood of Christ who washes us pure and clean? Remember, in this intimate description, the bride originally saw little or no beauty in herself. Back in chapter 1, when she looked at herself, she told him to look away. She said, I'm an unkempt vineyard. I have to take care of this vineyard, so I can't take care of this vineyard. So look away. I'm dusty. I'm dirty. I'm sunburned. Don't pay attention to me. That was her attitude. Wow, I remember feeling that way before Jesus lovingly got a hold of me and started to clean me up and started to, in my life, say, Rick, you're spotless. My blood has done it. You are clean. You are righteous. What, Lord? Yes. When I look at you, I see righteousness. How is that possible? You're washed in my blood. She tells the shepherd to look away, but he won't do it. He keeps at it. He keeps describing his bride, not as she sees herself, but as he sees her. Redeemed and pure and spotless and chaste and virginal. And eventually, if we pay attention, we start to believe it. And that's a good thing. After a while, we start to believe we are righteous. I am chaste. (laughs) I am clean. Oh, not because of me. But His grace really has done it. The more I listen to Jesus, the more I believe it. Now, before we leave the bedroom, we need to consider three more things. Three things going on here. Number one, the groom's song is selfless. This is a selfless song. Though he is singing, he only uses the personal pronoun I one time in all of these verses. Once, down there in verse 6, where he says, I will go my way to the mountain of Myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. The whole rest of the time, it's all about her. It's not about him. And, and I point that out for, for this reason. Our cultural view of sex in a marriage or anywhere is completely messed up. Our understanding is so off base We have this skewed and selfish and sinful take on something God gave to be most enjoyed unselfishly. It is actually best when it is unselfish, when it is about the other person in the marriage. And in these verses, gang, it's marvelous, it's all about her. He is just enraptured with her. He's not even letting her speak. She's not getting a chance to say, you know, your hair is like... The rocks on the beach. You know, she's not able to give her description at all. Because he is just he is just pouring out. He's just he is so taken with her. And it's all about her. And by the way, 
Married couples, that is a prescription for a healthy sexual relationship in a godly marriage. Put your spouse needs first. Guys, love her for her sake. Ladies, love him for his sake. Outdo one another in showing brotherly love and affection. Yes, even in marriage. So the groom's song is selfless. Secondly, the groom's song is sensitive. There's a reason why all of these images are pastoral. Doves, goats, sheep, pomegranates, fawns, gazelles, mountains, hills. Why is he singing this way? Think about it. This is the wedding night. She's still a shepherd girl at heart. And this palace and this royalty and being lifted up to marriage with the king, this is all a new thing. This is huge. (laughs) It's not what she's used to. And so here he is on the wedding night speaking her language. The pastoral, and he's got amazing sensitivity. And when we get to chapter 7, he's going to describe her again. He's going to go down the same list, except this time it's not going to be pastoral. It will be royal. Because by the time chapter 7 rolls around, she's accustomed to the court of the king. And so he uses royal imagery. He talks about her beauty in terms of jewels and goblets and crowns, as opposed to sheep and pomegranates and mountains. And so there's a pastoral setting to this. He is selfless, and this groom is sensitive helping her to be comfortable, setting her at ease. Even as he's making her aware of every intimate detail of her beauty, he sets her mind at ease by drawing images from her own pastoral life. And you know what she might respond? She might say something like, He really gets me. He really understands me. Even as he's describing me, he's he's seeing the world that I grew up in. It's almost as though he's entered my world. Which is why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 It's why Jesus entered our world. Amazing sensitivity on the part of God that He would enter into this world. And then in Jesus' teachings and His parables, what did He do? He used human examples. Even this song... What the under 30 crowd might have called, you know, carnal. Well, that's a really sexual thing in the middle of Scripture. He's saying, no, I'm using something that you understand. I'm speaking your language. It's romantic. It is intimate, but it is the language of the human being who will understand the love that I am trying to profess and show you here. God came to us selflessly. He came to us sensitively, entering this scenery. But gang, a day is coming when we will be accustomed to the courts of the king, isn't it? A day is coming when we will, we, we will walk as royalty and I guarantee our language will change. We're going to speak different than we do now. And it's going to be marvelous. So the groom's song is selfless and it's sensitive. And finally, number three, the groom's song here is sacrificial. And this is a marvelous verse. Look at verse six again. Sacrificial. Until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Which way did Jesus go? First, Jesus went to the mountain of myrrh that speaks of Calvary. Myrrh is that that scent that releases its fragrance only when it's crushed. It's that scent that is used as a burial spice. The mountain of Myrrh might very well be Mount Moriah in the picture. 
a type of Mount Moriah. And until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, I will go my way. Jesus might say to you, to me, I'll go my way to the mountain of Myrrh. I will go up Mount Calvary. I will die on that cross. And from there, then where does He go? The hill of frankincense. hill of frankincense. It speaks of the heavenly Zion. Frankincense is that scent, that perfume that the priests used in prayer in the temple. It's the high priestly scent. And so while the mountain of Myrrh speaks of Calvary, the hill of frankincense speaks of the heavenly Zion where Jesus currently intercedes for us. Let me put it simply, there's another song we sing, a kind of popular old Christian worship song. He came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. But for how long? How long is He in that place, praying on our behalf, interceding for us? How long is He going to be there on the hill of frankincense until the day blows? Until the day blows. Verse 11, back in chapter 3, tells us that this is the day of the gladness of His heart. Right? The day of Solomon's wedding. and The day of the gladness of the king's heart. Numbers chapter 10, verse 10. says, In the day of your gladness and in your appointed feasts, And on the first days of your months, you shall blow the trumpets. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us again, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Listen, on the morning when the trumpet sounds, that's when He comes to get us. In the meantime, Jesus has gone by way of the mountain of myrrh to the hill of frankincense where He intercedes for the saints constantly until the day when the trumpet blows, when the day blows, and the shadows flee away. And in verse 6, I hear Jesus saying, I went to the mountain of myrrh. For you, I went to Golgotha. And now I'm on the hill of frankincense praying for you in the heavenly Zion until the trumpet blows signaling the day of the gladness of my heart. Now, the rest of this third canticle, the groom is summoning the bride to come away with him for an extended honeymoon. Verse 8. He sings, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. Journey down, he says. Some translations, the King James for one says, Look! Look from the summit. Look down from this place. Others say descend, the NIV. Descend from the summit. But the indication here is invitation. What he's saying in this verse, now that the morning has come, the day is blowing, he says, let's go. Let's get out of here. Let's hit the road. Let's go on our honeymoon. Let's get away together. Come away with me, he says, from the lions and the leopards. That is the threats or the dangers, or the fearful things, or the terrors, or the worries of your life. Come away from all that. Leave it all behind. It's the groom's invitation to come away into a place of absolute security and protection. You know, it's interesting to me here, and we'll talk about this on Sunday, when the wedding procession wound its way from Ephraim up to Jerusalem. We're told in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3 that there were 60 armed men surrounding the king's palanquin. As bride and groom ride along together, carried in that that sedan, in that couch of Solomon. 
They're surrounded by 60 men of the army, 60 of the mighty men protecting them, showing strength, security. Who are these guys? We'll talk about that Sunday. But here's what's fascinating to me. Now, suddenly, on the honeymoon, it's just him. Come away with me. No mighty men. No security force. No secret service. Nobody that... Just the two of them. And it just reminds me that truly our protection, our security, our safety is in Him more than any other thing. If you go back to Psalm 91, just a few pages to the left. Psalm 91... reads as follows, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For listen, it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Then you will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. Amazing. All the mighty men who were present before That was more a show of strength than anything else because now she has all the protection, all the security she needs, and it's simply in Him. Verse (laughs) 9. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. Literally, he's saying, you have ravished my heart. Be faster there. The Hebrew means to ravish. (laughs) You've ravished my heart. Do you get this? This is Jesus. And He's talking about you. And He's talking about me. I mean, this is incredible. And yet if we're paying attention, it's not the first time we've heard Him say this. It's not the first time Jesus' heart has been opened up to say, I am... am." absolutely overcome with love for my people, for my bride, for my beloved. I I just love them so much. What are you talking about, Rick? Well, let me just give you one example. John 17, and I'll read this to you. Verse 22, the night of His betrayal, the night where if it was me, I would have been completely self-consumed, completely worried, freaking out, you know, upset about myself. You know, the 12, the 12 forget you guys, go, go eat somewhere else. I'm, I'm about to be crucified here. That would have been my heart, not Jesus. He is completely others focused. And his love begins to spill out as he pray, prays that marvelous prayer in John 17, verse 22. He says, The glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved Me even as You have loved them. Listen to that. That they may be perfected in unity. Not that they may be perfected, again, as an institution. As an organization carrying out the ministry of the church. No. That they may be unified. One person. 
one in love with each other, even Father as you and I are one. He goes on, he says, you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, would be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory, which you've given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has known you, yet I have known you. Or the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known. Why, Jesus? Listen. So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you believe Jesus loves you? I look back to that kid that I was and I say, Rick, he said it right there. He said it over and over and over throughout Scripture. I love you. How many more times can I say I love you? That I want you to be where I am. That the love with which God loved me might be in you. And that I might be in you. This is its just incredible. Can we even conceive of the love that God has for us? Remember, this is the song of the groom. This is His song for the bride. And J. Vernon McGee says, It would break your heart and my heart if we really knew how much He loves us. Break our hearts. There's a reason why when Jesus comes, and it's described in Zechariah 14, there's a reason why all the people mourned for Him. They're not just mourning out of shame that they didn't realize who He was. They're mourning out of a realization of how much He loved them. The love comes washing in and it just it breaks their hearts. It should break our hearts to recognize the depth of His passion. Well, then why does He call her sister? <laughs> Verse 9. You've made my heart beat faster. My sister, my bride. It's the Hebrew word akoth, and it's a term of endearment. It's actually a term of, of affection between a husband and his wife. He would say sister lovingly, endearingly about his wife. Verse 10, he says, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. But she said it in the earlier part of the song. Your love is better than wine. Now he says it. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices? The word love in verse 10 is dodim in the Hebrew and it's literally physical caresses and romantic contact. It's love expressed in the physical sense. And as you read through this, you may have picked this up. All of the senses are involved in this love that Christ is professing for His bride. All of the senses, sight, smell, sound, touch, and watch this, even taste is involved. Verse 11, Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Those cedar trees. Lebanon, it was said, because of the massive amounts of cedar, just had this amazing scent to it. This beautiful smell. But he says, you even taste good. There's milk and honey under your tongue. Now listen, milk and honey. What are these two words used to describe in the Scriptures? Milk and honey. What what does that describe? The promised land. It's used over 23 times in the Hebrew Scripture. 
Milk and honey together as a picture of the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. What are you getting at, Rick? Listen. The kisses of the bride taste like the promised land to the groom. Her kisses are to him as the land that he loves. It's the same sense of joy that Jesus feels for the land of Israel when He receives and engages in the kisses with His bride, the milk and honey kisses. It reminds Him of how much He loves the land. I love you. I love my land. You remind me of the land when you love me this way. And gang, how do you think the kisses of the bride taste after spouting things like replacement theology? The milk and honey is gone from the bride's kisses when there's anti-Semitism on her lips. Because as passionate as Jesus is for His bride, God the Father is for His wife, Israel. And I can't say that strongly enough because, gang, you may not see it as often as I do, but right now in publications I'm reading and things I'm seeing, the church is just turning its back on Israel more and more and more. It's becoming a minority of Christians who stand for the people of Israel. It's becoming a majority of Christians who are saying, No! The church is Israel! The church has replaced Israel. They had their chance. They blew it. They're done. And now it's us. And you know what? When we say that, all the milk and honey goes out of our mouths. And there's nothing but bitterness in those kisses. And God said in Joel 3.2, and He keeps His promises. God said, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and there I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of My people and My inheritance, Israel whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up My land. Jesus loves His bride, but her right affections are to Him like sweet reminders of His Father's love for His people and His land, Israel. Verse 12. A garden locked is My sister, My bride. A rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. She's a virgin on the wedding night. A garden locked. She has not given herself to any other. He is rejoicing in her purity, in her chasteness, in the fact that she is a spotless bride. And again I say, Lord, that can't be me. And again he says, yes it can. Yes it is. Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, verse 6, all of us have become like the one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. But Jesus makes us chaste. Jesus makes us pure. He accomplishes this. So that Isaiah says in chapter 61, verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation, wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And so, listen, build the wall of purity. Build the wall of purity. Build a wall around your purity. What are you saying? Come away. Be as He sees you. Don't be like the world. Be set apart. Be holy. Be pure. Be different. Be chaste in an unchaste world. But won't that turn people off? No. They will see the beauty of Christ's purity all over you. It is attractive. It is alluring. Build the wall. That doesn't mean we wall out the world and we hole up in the barn until Jesus comes. It means we protect the purity to which He has called us. 
We protect our holiness. We say, I'm not going to engage in those things that are unholy, those things that would drag me down. I'm not going to go to those places that would make me unpure. I would remain a virgin in Christ. We need to be like the psalmist David. Psalm 4, verse 3, who says, The Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. Are you set apart for the Lord? Are you His? Verse 13, Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates, with choice fruits, henna and nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all the finest spices. Man, he's just going off. You smell good, you look good, you taste good, you feel good, it's all good. Good fruit. She's got good fruit. Paul said in Philippians 1 verse 9, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve of the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of the Father. Paul also said, and you know the verse, I hope you know it well, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fruit. We tend to use that verse as a measure of our own spiritual growth. I have. Maybe you don't, but I have. I, I kind of look at it and say, okay, am I more loving? You know, Am I more uh, peaceful? Is there joy in me? Uh, is there patience? And kind of, you know, Go down the list. And, and I would do this back for years. I would kind of go down the list in my head. Okay, am I more this way? Not really today. So I need to work in this area you know, and try to bear this fruit. And I would use it almost as a measuring rod of how spiritual I was. But ask yourself, am I producing this kind of fruit for me or for Him? Is the fruit of the Spirit in my life, is this for me to measure myself and my goodness? Or am I about producing the fruit of the Spirit for Him to eat, for Him to take? I mean, certainly it's of His Spirit, but gang, it's a totally different perspective to say this is for His good pleasure. I'm more loving... Because it brings joy to Him. My patience is something that He enjoys. My gentleness, my self-control, my kindness, these things, the Lord wants to eat of this fruit. And He wants to see it in me. He generates it, but He also enjoys it. Verse 15. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, and streams flowing from Lebanon. Three tributaries flow out of Lebanon and they form together the Jordan River. So this is geographically accurate that she's like this well, the stream flowing out of Lebanon. But note this, the well of fresh water here. Fresh is the Hebrew word chai. Chai, you've heard the, the, the song to life, to life, lachayim, because chai is life. What do you mean? This is living water. Literally in the Hebrew, you are to me a well of living water. Can the picture be any more vivid, saints? John 4.14, Jesus says, Whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst, but the water I give him will become in him a well of water springing up 
to eternal life. Over in John 7, verse 38, He who believes in Me, Jesus says, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And by the way, He says the Scriptures say that. And this is one of but two or three possibilities in the Hebrew Scriptures that He could be alluding to. Right here, you are a well of living water. And so Jesus connects us to the Song of Songs and says, you be like that. You believe in Me and you will be the the pure, spotless bride who is a well of living water, My Spirit flowing up and out of you. All of this, all that He sings through these verses, through verse 15, are the effect of the bride on the groom. This is the impact that she's having on Him. She is ravishing his heart. She is just blowing him away as he sings his way through this. And all through this, listen, she's been silent. She hasn't said a thing. She's just listening. She's taking it in. She's probably a little overwhelmed. Listen now to the one line on the wedding night that the bride sings. Verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south, Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. Now hold it right there. She says, let the wind blow. Whether it's from the north or from the south, let the wind blow. Why? So the fragrance of their garden might go out from where they are. So it's not just the two of them enjoying the sweetness, the the, the sweet scent, the fragrance, but that fragrance is spreading out. It's going out that the world might know. But listen, she says two things here. Blow wind from the north. Blow from the south. Well, the wind from the north in Israel, that's a cold, biting, bitter, wintry wind. The wind from the south, when the breezes turn that direction, are warm and balmy summer breezes. What are you saying? Spurgeon told the story of a man who had the words, God is love, painted up on a weather vane on top of his house. A friend of his came along and said, why did you do that? Why did you put God is love up on your weather vane? Are you saying that God's love is as changing as as the wind that blows, as the direction of the wind? And he says, no, not, not in the least. What I'm saying is, whichever direction the wind blows, God is love. Whether it's blowing the harsh, cold, bitter winds from the north, or the warm, balmy winds from the south, whether life is hard, cold, and bitter, or warm and peaceful, in either case, God is love. The Spirit blows both ways. The Spirit blows, and sometimes we shiver. And sometimes the wind is cold and the way is hard, but He's still with us. He still loves us. That never ceases. Those who would question God's love when life gets tough are missing this sweet truth. The bride recognizes it. Though the wind blow hard, God loves me. And when the wind blows softly from the south, God loves me. Either way. In fact, either way, the bride says, bring it on. Blow, wind, blow. Whatever direction, Lord, you need to blow. Whatever wind, whatever direction your spirit leads me. We don't know which way the wind blows. So it is with anyone who is born of the Spirit, Jesus said. Whatever direction, lead me on, Lord. Just lead me on. Nahum chapter 1, verse 3 says, In whirlwind and storm is His way. 
and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. And so the bride says, let the wind blow. And then she opens herself up completely to the groom, saying, may my beloved come into His garden and eat its choice fruits. What is His garden? She is. She's the garden. She is inviting Him to take her. To take her completely. To take her fully. And you know what's marvelous? (laughs) He already has. Verse 1 of chapter 5. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. He's referring to the love He has had with her already. She's saying, take me. And He's saying, I've taken you. And I will continue to take you. And then the third canticle ends with the strangest thing. Before I tell you this, realize this. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. John 14.23 If you want me, Jesus says, have me. I will come to you. And before I conclude this, i got to ask this final question. How far do you want to go with Jesus? How far do you want to go with Jesus? He wants to go all the way. How about you? Are you willing to open yourself to Him completely? Now the last few words the groom sings here, or that are sung in verse 1, and that concludes the third canticle, is, Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. What? (laughs) That's really odd. I mean, husbands, when was the last time in an intimate moment with your wife you called out to your friends? Said, hey gang, drink up! This is wedding night. This is an intimate moment. Groom and bride all alone. And, and I read that. I was like, wait a minute. Who's talking here? What's this about? Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O oh lovers. It's an, an invitation that goes out beyond just the bride. And some commentators have, have said this is kind of an aside from the groom in the middle you know, of the lovemaking. He's with her. They're talking back and forth. She says, take me. He says, I have. And then he goes, hey, drink up, gang. Really? Some commentators think the groom is saying this to friends or perhaps to the wedding party or to the daughters of Zion. And I have to ask, what are all these people doing in his bedroom? That's a little odd. I suggest that this is someone else. In fact, I suggest to you tonight that these last couple of sentences here of verse 1 in chapter 5 are sung and spoken by someone who doesn't sing any other time in the entire song just this one time. Who is this? Who is this that says, Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. It's the only other person who could possibly be in the bedroom. The only other person who would be welcomed there at the consummation of this marriage is the Creator of love. It's love Himself. These are the words of God the Father speaking to all who would listen 
God is saying, I approve of, I provide for, and I invite groom and his bride to an awesome love. Eat, friends. Drink. And imbibe deeply, O lovers. The seal of the Father's approval is on this marriage. So let us rejoice and be glad. And give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Revelation 19.7 Let's make ourselves ready. Jesus, may Your words wash over us. May the power and the truth of Your love overwhelm us. May we receive the invitation to drink and imbibe deeply as lovers of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.